Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege and freedom that we enjoy to gather together and to study your word. We pray that you would be with us and strengthen us this afternoon and particularly that you would increase our faith. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the public meetings team have asked us to do a dangerous thing. Uh, I, I know that you felt a little anxiety as you came here today and that, that's perhaps why some are not here amongst us because we know that this is a dangerous thing here. Uh, the public meetings team have asked us to look at ourselves. Uh, it's a dangerous thing because we love to do it. It's your favourite topic, I know, yourself. Uh, you delight in talking about yourself and you'll often change conversations so that they do revolve around yourself. It's something that the evil one loves us to do as Christians is to look and think and wonder and speculate and postulate and, and reflect on ourselves. It's dangerous too because once we start it can be hard to stop. And the one thing that's guaranteed to stifle your Christian life is looking constantly, repeatedly uh, and endlessly at yourself and not at Christ. What the team has asked us to do is to take some time examining the essence of the Christian life and experience the defining characteristics of the Christian response to God, the slogan, if you want to put it that way, that gives shape and definition to what a Christian is. Faith, hope and love. These uh, three occur famously in 1 Corinthians 13 where Paul is rebuking the Corinthians. It's not a happy wedding you know, text that Paul gave for weddings immemorial. Uh, the nasty, spike, well not spiteful, but it's a spiky, poke in the eye rebuke by Paul to the Corinthians who've been majoring on the minors and minoring on the majors. And he says to them, sure you can be as gifted as Ian Thorpe, Plato and Rockefeller all rolled into one, but if you don't have love, he says, you're a waste of space. He concludes uh, his chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, in this way, love never ends, but as for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know only in part, and we prophesy only in part, but when the complete comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became an adult, I put an end to childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. Now I know only in part, then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. And now faith, hope and love abide, these three. And the greatest of these is love. What really matters... What really defines a Christian person is not how gifted they are, uh, not how how, how wonderfully uh, intellectual and um, theological they are, not even how committed they are. You can give your body to be burned, says the Apostle. What really defines a Christian person is faith, hope and love, and that's because these three abide. They remain. They don't pass away. They're not partial. They're not incomplete. They remain. They are for all time and for all of eternity. Faith, hope and love. And the greatest of these is love. We'll get to love in our third talk. These are the three things that God is looking for in you. And so uh, it's over the next three weeks that we'll unpack what they mean and what it is for us to grow in them. Fortunately, each of them is profoundly outward oriented in their own right and so we should be on safe enough ground. So firstly then, uh, the biblical centrality of faith We'll uh, look at that under uh, two texts and then I'll uh, um, 
give you a couple of uh, thoughts as a result of that. Uh, then we'll contrast faith with its alternatives and then finally conclude. So firstly, the biblical centrality of faith. Uh, I want to start with one of Jesus' most memorable metaphors. Um, I recently looked at this again and was struck by just how impressive and graphic this speech of Jesus is in John chapter 6. Uh, the contrast, if you have your Bible, that would be helpful if you get John chapter 6 out. Uh, the context, rather, of John chapter 6 is the Passover. You see that in verse 3, I think. <clears throat> the Passover, which was a meal or festival, much for us like Christmas or Easter, which... Uh, reminded the Jewish people of the great moment in their history, the Exodus. Uh, you may remember that the Exodus was accompanied by two magnificent signs. Uh, the uh, Jewish people passed through the uh, Red Sea and then they were fed with manna in the desert. And Jesus, in the context of the Passover feast, repeats these two events. He feeds the 5,000 and he walks on water himself, indicating that all that the Passover reminds and evokes, all the hopes that were tied up with a new exodus like the old exodus, are fulfilled and being brought to bear in and through Jesus himself, who gives manna, who gives bread, who walks through water, who leads to safety. Uh, Jesus has been on the other side of the lake, he walks across the water and gets back onto the sort of Jewish side of the lake. Eventually the, the crowds come around and find him and ask him a stupid question. Uh, he's just fed the 5,000 people, probably 5,000 men actually, 12,000, 15,000 people in all. Uh, he's probably just walked on water, as far as they know, across. And so, having done those two things, they ask him the obvious question, which is, when did you get here? <laughs> Typically, Jesus completely ignores uh, what anyone, frankly, as far as I can tell, says to him. And he proceeds to educate them on the nature of real food. Pick it up in John chapter 6 and verse 48. He says, I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. That's the bread of death. That This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats of this bread will live forever and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Uh, they make a big mistake. They start talking about and disputing what they said, what, what he said, verse 52. The Jews then disputed amongst themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And so Jesus, not wanting to offend people, not wanting to sort of put things in stark and harsh terms, not, <laughs> says this, very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Those who eat my flesh, just in case you didn't get it the first time, and drink my blood, have eternal life, and I'll raise them up on the last day. For, just in case you missed it the second time, my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood, fourth time, abide in me, and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever eats me, eats me, will live because of me. Food and drink are those things which sustain life, aren't they? You can't do without them. I think, what is it, 40 days, 7 weeks, 6 weeks, 7 weeks, you can do without food, Suddenly, a few days you can do without drink, and then you die. And what Jesus is saying is that his flesh and his blood, his life and his death are to our souls 
what your wheat bits and orange juice were to your bodies this morning, or whatever you might have had, um, pancakes, or I don't know what you eat for breakfast, muesli bars, or something. Right? You needed that this morning, and I, I don't know if you're like me. Uh, yesterday I got a headache because I hadn't eaten enough. I needed more sugar, so I had a Krispy Kreme donut. I thought sugar, fat. <laughs> Those are the two basic staples of life, and the Krispy Kreme donut would do the job adequately. I needed food, and I had the food, and I had a glass of water to drink, and my headache disappeared. That's how life works, isn't it? You need food, you need drink. And what Jesus is saying is that you need Him spiritually as much as you need those things physically. And so the question is there, isn't it? How do you eat Jesus? How do you take into your life his life how do you get his substance to be your substance well earlier in the chapter he's given us the clue go back to verse 27 he says this is the only instruction in the, in the chapter by the way this I think stands verse 27 as the heading over the whole chapter do not work for the food that perishes but for the food that endures for eternal life which the son of man will give you for it is on him that God the father has set his seal He says, don't work, don't invest your life and your energy and your soul in the food which won't do you any good. Career and toys and success for other people work, he says, for the food that endures. Not which just ends up in the sewer or in the scrap heap or out of the tip. Work for the food that endures for eternal life, which he goes on and explains is his own flesh and blood. And how do you do that? He says, what must, they said to him, what must we do to perform the works of God? Verse 28. And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe into him, that you trust into him, whom he has sent. <coughs> this is the first thing to say about faith. The biblical necessity of faith. Faith is not a thing in itself, you see. When is a work not a work? A work is not a work when it's faith. Jesus has this kind of nice table-turning process. What is it to do the works of God? What must we work to do the works of God? The work of God is to believe, to entrust. Faith is what unites you to Christ. The biblical necessity of faith is that it is faith that unites you to Christ entrusting yourself to Jesus giving yourself over to him is how you take the life and death of Jesus into yourself so that his life becomes your life and his death becomes your death and his power becomes your power the power of life because of the fact that the Father has given him life and he lives in the Father Without jaw muscles and teeth, you die for lack of food. Unless you've got one of those tubes that kind of goes straight in. Without faith, you die spiritually. It's as simple as that. Why? You die of spiritual malnutrition because you don't have Jesus. Because faith is how you connect to Jesus. There is no other way and there's no additional way. Faith is what unites you to Christ. That's how you eat Jesus. That's the first point. Secondly, let's dig a little deeper into the nature of this faith, this time with the Apostle Paul. Romans chapter 4 is an uh, important chapter in uh, Paul's letter to the Romans. 
uh, Paul uses the example of Abraham to indicate that uh, faith is the key issue in the gospel and is not an innovation. It's not something new, this idea that faith is what uh, saves us by being connecting uh, to God's purposes. It's, main, it's God's main game. The law, the Old Testament law, the, the Old Testament covenant, uh, is the sideshow. Chapter 4, verse 2. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God. Belief and faith are the same word. Abraham entrusted himself to God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. That's a quote from Genesis. We'll come to it in a moment. Now the one who works, wages are not reckoned as a gift, but as something due. But to one who without works, trusts him who justifies the ungodly, such faith is reckoned as righteousness. Faith, as we've seen, is what unites you to Christ. Another way of saying that is to say that faith is trusting the promises of God. Faith is trusting the promises of God. In this case, that Abraham, uh, who Paul later goes on and describes, is basically as, uh, you know, 100 years old, his wife is barren, they're as good as dead, they, they, they you know, barely get to kiss each other goodnight. But, you know, once they're that age, really, children for them are really not an option. You know what I'm saying? God had promised him that he'll be the father of many nations. Joke. No joke. Abraham trusted God. The promise in Genesis 15, uh, verses 5 and 6, God brings Abraham outside and says, Look toward the heaven and count the stars if you're able to count them. Then he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Uh, That's not impressive if you live in a city because there's too many lights around and so you look up in the sky and you can only count about 15 stars. But uh, go to one of those um, places where they don't have many shops uh, and, and the internet connection is, is uh, by satellite uh, the country and uh, you see the stars there right uh, it, is, it is stunning and I suspect that Abraham's experience was more like that and God says to him that's how many children you'll have this guy who is unlikely to have any kids and he believed it. He believed the Lord, Genesis 15.6. He believed the Lord. And the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. Paul says, that was Abraham before he was even circumcised, that key marker of Jewish ethnic identity. So, so Abraham stands as the father figure of Jews, yes that's true, but also of Gentiles, those who don't have the law, circumcision and and food laws and so on and so on, Gentiles who simply have faith, like you and me if you're not a Jew here this afternoon. Paul says, faith upholds the law. Faith is the fulfilment of this promise to Abraham to be the father of many nations. Listen uh, to how he describes it, picks it up in, I think it's verse 16. Why are these promises received by faith, Paul says? For this reason it depends on faith. Firstly, in order that the promise may rest on grace. And secondly, and be guaranteed to all his descendants. See those two reasons? For this reason it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace. 
and be guaranteed to all his descendants. Not only to the adherents of the law, Jews, but also to those who share the faith of Abraham, for he is the father of all of us, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Notice three things here about the significance, the biblical necessity of this faith. First, the reason that it all depends on faith, that the promises of God depend on faith, that the way you connect to life and Christ is through faith, is that faith is the only thing that guarantees that the way God relates to us is by grace. Faith guarantees that the way God relates to us is by grace. Mere trust, mere empty-handedness, utter lack of deserving capacity, ability or due. Faith is important because faith is nothing. Faith is important because faith ensures that God is everything. You see, that's what Paul is saying. The promise comes by grace and that's held, that's locked in place by the fact that we are saved through faith. But secondly, that has another implication which is that faith is a universally accessible option for people. You don't have to become a Jew, says the Apostle, in order to be part of God's team. It's guaranteed to all his descendants, all of Abraham's descendants, not only the ones that are Jews, who are descendants of Abraham according to the flesh, according to a bloodline, but all his descendants, including those who, like me, as a Hungarian, uh, although I'm uh, uh, deeply connected to Mongols, the Mongolians, I've no connection to Abraham, right? Fleshly speaking. But I do, spiritually speaking, I'm a direct descendant of Abraham by faith. Because of my faith, he and I share a common spiritual bloodline, the bloodline of faith. This is what makes faith so important. This is is why uh, faith is biblically necessary, because it locks in the place of the grace of God, and it makes the grace of God accessible and available to all. No, secondly, this is faith in the God of the impossible. So you see how God is described. This is the one who, earlier on, is the one who justifies the ungodly. That's an impossibility to justify the ungodly. God is is the one who gives life to the dead. God is the one who calls into existence the things that do not exist. He's the one who is the doer of impossible things. This, of course, is why faith the size of a mustard seed, as Jesus put it, is all you need, isn't it? Because the issue is not the size of your faith, but the size of your God. And when God is the one who justifies ungodly wretches, when God is the one who gives life to the dead, when God is the one who calls into existence things that do not exist, then your faith may be absolutely infinitesimal. But connected to this God, you can do all things. Thirdly, this faith... Uh, that Abraham has is incredibly active Uh, in response to the promise of God uh, he leaves his homeland he's even prepared to sacrifice his own child I think that might be what lies behind uh, Paul's uh, phrase here that he gives life to the dead 
that, that Abraham was prepared to take Isaac and all the way, all the way to the altar with the, with the knife plunged, ready to plunge within seconds because he believed that uh, God could give life to the dead even his dead son the son of the promise Faith is absolutely necessary, not because it's a thing in itself, but because it unites you to Christ and preserves the grace of God. Listen to how John Calvin defined faith. I've got it there for you, I think. Now, we shall possess a right definition of faith if we call it a firm and certain knowledge of God's kindness toward us, founded on the truth of the freely given promise in Christ, both revealed to our minds and sealed upon our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Notice the Trinitarian shaping of faith, God's kind, good kindness towards us, in a freely given promise in Christ, sealed on our hearts and revealed to our minds through the Holy Spirit. Uh, Luther was a little more flowery, Define faith in this way. Faith is a living and unshakable confidence. A belief in the grace of God so assured that a man would die a thousand deaths for its sake. This kind of confidence in God's grace, this sort of knowledge of it, makes us high-spirited and eager in our relation with God and all mankind. This is what the Holy Spirit effects through faith. Hence the man of faith, without being driven willingly and gladly seeks to do good to everyone, serve everyone, suffer all kinds of hardships for the sake of the love and glory of the God who has shown him such grace. It is impossible indeed to separate works from faith, just as it is impossible to separate heat and light from fire. Well, as we continue to uh, try and flesh out what it is we mean by faith, uh, later Christian thinkers have distinguished three aspects uh, to Christian faith and I think this is a helpful way to see things uh, on the one hand uh, people have identified faith as believing in Jesus' words you might call that faith A accepting Jesus as your prophet the one who speaks the truth to you so that your mind is formed by his word above all else you may study many things and you may be an expert in many different fields but your mind is formed fundamentally in its convictions and patterns by the word of your prophet. That's the first part of faith. Faith as a sense. But secondly, there's faith as trust in Jesus' word. Faith as trust in Jesus' work. This is faith which trusts Jesus as your priest, your great high priest, so that your past and your future are secure. Your past in sin and failure has been atoned for by your priest. Jesus has offered himself once for all as the true sacrifice for sin. And so you're clean from all your sins. And your future is secure as you face the inevitability of your death. And your great high priest is still on the job, interceding at the right hand of the Father for you. 
But there's a third element, faith in Jesus' authority. Faith in Jesus as your king. And so you have a heart for obedience, that little H-O there. A heart for obedience as you yield your life to Jesus. I think it's a very helpful way to understand faith. True Christian faith then is all of these things together. Faith as a sense that you believe the word of Jesus. Jesus says to you, well, think about something that Jesus says to you. All authority in heaven and earth have been given to me. You believe that. Jesus says to me, those who are not connected to me have no life. Well, you you believe that too. Jesus says that uh, the way to live your life is according to truth-telling, not according to deception and lies. That it's in giving your life that you receive it, that it's in dying that you're born to eternal life. You believe that. The world around you tells uh, tells you, uh, no, you've got to secure it. You've got to establish yourself. You've got to get financial security. I don't know how many people I talk to who uh, speak of uh, major life decisions like whether to get married or not in terms of whether they have financial security in place. Uh, Now there's a place for sensible and wise decisions about money and all that kind of stuff, but frankly life does not consist in financial security. We trust Jesus on this one more than we trust our culture, sometimes even more than we trust our parents. We trust Jesus as our priest that he has worked for us. He doesn't just teach us, he's done stuff for us. That he's atoned for our sins and has secured our future. And we trust Jesus as our king, that he has the authority uh, in our life. Let me say uh, three things about this. Uh, This faith is a thorough and complete yielding to God. Uh, Robert Adams, in his book The Virtue of Faith, contrasts two types of faith, and I think it's quite a helpful contrast. Uh, On the one hand, he says, you have taxi driver faith. Uh, I don't know if you catch taxis. I don't catch taxis much, except when I'm running uh, extra late, later than usual. And um, it's, a, it's a lovely moment of both power and also uncertainty, isn't it? especially uh, if you're in a different city and so you don't really know where you're going. Uh, you might be the kind of confident person who's able to tell a taxi driver, you know, take a left here, go here, do that. Normally I just say, I don't know really the best way or I do know but I don't want to be bossy. And so I say, uh, law school is where I catch taxis too because I'm running late to go down to law school. Get, get, take me to law school. And we head out to Potts Point and we sort of wander around by <laughs> Sutherland and all that kind of stuff. But, but what you do is you entrust yourself to the taxi driver, don't you? You entrust yourself to the taxi driver. But notice what's inadequate about taxi driver faith. What's inadequate about taxi driver faith is that you still determine the destination, don't you? The taxi driver gets you there, but where you're going is where you want to go. That's not Christian faith. Christian faith is best friend faith, if you want to put it like that. It's where you trust the person 
not only to do the right thing by you and to not go from Glebe to law school by Sutherland, but you even let that person decide what your destination will be. You trust Jesus, you entrust yourself so thoroughly to Jesus that not only do you trust him to get you where you want to go, in fact, no, you trust him to decide where you want to go. Even if you don't really want to go there. It's a dependent faith in which you trust God for your purposes and your needs. Um, As a child, you see, you started out relating to your parents with best friend faith. You, You trusted your parents not only to get you where you needed to go, but to define for you the outcomes of your life. Now, of course, you just use your parents like a taxi. Give me a lift here, give me a lift there. Unless you get uh, you know, a license, which case you just steal the car. Christian faith is not just believing that something is true, even the devils believe something is true and shudder. It's not just faith assent. It's not just trusting God to achieve my purposes in my life. Uh, Some Christian teachers can play on this inadequate form of faith, picking up on what it is that people want in their lives, felt needs of their experience. Uh, You know, I may have heard of a recent book, You Need More Money. Now that's taxi driver faith. I'd like some more money and God will help me to get it. I want to get to law school and God will get me there. Now, Christian faith trusts God for my good, even to give me my purposes in life. That the one who was rich became poor for our sakes, so that by his poverty we might become rich. That's how I live my life. Secondly, notice, according to this, this is why faith and obedience go together. Faith and obedience will always go together because part of faith is your entrusting of yourself to Jesus as your king. Notice, faith and obedience are not the same thing as one another. They're not identical. They're not even part of one another. It's not the case that obedience is a kind of a part of faith, as though you can distinguish in that sense kind of... um, obedient faith or disobedient faith I don't think that's quite the right way to put it either and they're not reversible faith and obedience lie in an asymmetrical relationship to one another faith leads to obedience or works faith, sorry, obedience is the fruit and faith is the root but faith and obedience are never to be opposed to one another The faith which alone justifies is never alone because it's faith in the king of our lives. But notice thirdly that this heart for obedience is not perfect obedience. It's a heart set towards obedience. It's not the same thing as perfect obedience there is still room for failure and repentance. This is Christian faith. Trust in Jesus as your prophet, trust in Jesus as your priest, and trust in Jesus as your king. And it's worth thinking about yourself, isn't it? Is this you? 
Is this the dominant reality in your life? That the way you live your life from day to day in the construction of your mind and in the recognition of your sin and in the pattern of your life is to have entrusted yourself to Jesus. Well, let's look quickly at some biblical contrasts to faith. You can see uh, perhaps a little better by contrast. The first contrast that's made uh, to faith is sight. Uh, in 2 Corinthians, uh, Paul's second letter uh, to that ratty church in Corinth, uh, he writes in a terrifyingly honest way about his experience of being a Christian. He says it's full of trouble and struggle. Listen, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16, for example, although there are many passages where he writes about this. He says we don't lose heart, as he says that three times. You know why someone says three times that they're not feeling discouraged? I'm not feeling discouraged. That's because they're pretty close to feeling discouraged. Even though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all measure. Because we look at what, not at what can be seen, but at what cannot be seen. For what can be seen is temporary, but what cannot be seen is eternal. His experience of life is of wasting away. He described the persecutions and the sufferings, the shipwrecks and the floggings that he's received. His great boast at the end of the letter, his great climactic boast is, well, the greatest uh, honour that could be awarded, the Victoria Cross of the ancient world, was uh, when you climbed up, you were the first soldier up a wall uh, when you were um, entering a city. Paul's great boast is that he got let down a wall in a basket. That's how impressive he is. One writer put it this way, what if we carry about with us the pain of being half put back together and half still in pieces? What if we have identity crises, if we live with ambiguities and face problems we can't solve overnight? Is that not what being a Christian is all about? As the Apostle Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, we are taken for imposters and yet are genuine. Dying and behold we live in pain yet always full of joy. Poor yet making many rich, having nothing yet possessing everything. Paul is not describing an occasional unfortunate lapse from the norm. This is the normal Christian experience. In a world which is not right, which is out of joint, that will be our experience. And the Apostle says, in the midst of that, we walk not by sight, not by sight, not according to our experience, but by faith. But by faith. That's not some sort of hypothetical thing, some theoretical thing which we just kind of cling on to. No, it's a reality by which we are connected to the promises of God. Paul says, so we're always confident, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 6, even though we know that while we're at home in the body, we're away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we do have confidence and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we're at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. 
Uh, I don't know what your experience of the Christian life is, but I, I know one thing, and that is that your experience, your sight, your feelings will go up and down and all around the place. There will be moments of great triumph and joy where you see God work in remarkable and wonderful ways. And there will be times that are more like a desert than a garden. When you are dry and weary and worn and sad. When you wonder if God's absent and you think that he doesn't care and that his power to bring life out of death is absolutely nil. Well, if you don't walk according to your sight then, you don't let that sight, that experience dominate and determine your relation to God. You don't deny the importance of the feelings. It's not that we pretend that they're not happening or suppress them or just kind of shove them aside. It's that we don't let them determine for us. For we walk not according to sight, but according to faith. Well, I'm going to uh, skip over uh, the next couple. We don't walk... Another contrast between faith uh, in the Bible is with faith and the law. And in particular in Galatians, you see that uh, faith is what determines Christian fellowship. Paul has a heavyweight fight. It's quite an encouraging thing, I find, that the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter had an argument with one another. Even great Christian giants like Paul and Peter have fights. It seems, uh, at the face of it, a silly matter that they fight over. Who can sit at what table and have dinner with someone? Paul says, no, when you put something other than Christian faith in between you and another Christian person, then you have done a catastrophic thing. In effect, you've said that because I don't relate to another person simply by faith, that is, we have faith in common, so we have everything in common, then what you've done is, in effect, you've said you don't relate to God simply by faith either. We're not to create artificial barriers in our relationships with brothers and sisters. If we have faith, then that is enough. Anything added to faith as a requirement for Christian fellowship is really the same thing as adding to faith as the requirement for uniting you to Christ, you see. That's why you're not acting, says the Apostle Paul uh, in Galatians 2, consistent with or in line with the Gospel. Faith is what unites us to Christ and therefore faith is what unites us to our Christian brothers and sisters. Uh, Thirdly, uh, we saw with Abraham that faith is contrasted with merit or due. Faith is the opposite of working for something. Uh, You may do work where you get paid. Uh, Seems a fair enough system, doesn't it? You sell your labour, you get thoroughly ripped off. Uh, you make stacks of money for your boss who gets the surplus uh, labour from you. You get $4 an hour. But that 4 bucks is yours by right. And you can sue for it. Well, that's not how it works with God. Faith is contrasted to merit. Nothing we can do can ever place God in obligation to us in the same way as your employer is obliged to you. And finally, faith is opposed to fear. I thought of this one uh, edition this morning after sending the outline through last night. Faith is in contrast to fear. You see this in the great Faith Hall of Fame in Hebrews chapter 11. Now a deeply moving account of those who have suffered and triumphed by the active force of faith in their lives. Listen at the end of the chapter, verse 32. 
What more should I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched raging fire, escaped the edge of the sword, won strength out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, women received their dead by resurrection. So yeah, that's, that's my kind of faith. Now don't stop reading there. Others were tortured, refusing to accept release in order to obtain a better resurrection. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned to death, they were sawn in two, they were killed by the sword, they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, persecuted, tormented. This too is a life of faith. This is what faith enables you to do to conquer fear. The writer says, and I think this is one of my favourite phrases in the whole Bible, of whom the world was not worthy. The world was not worthy of these people of faith, these great heroes. They wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves and holes in the ground. It's faith that prevents you from suffering what author Greg Lavoie calls the common cold of the soul, a kind of stagnation in life and uh, in the Christian life, which means you only ever half live. You get trapped by your fears and anxieties into a kind of comfortable, comatose settledness. Uh, He put it like this, sinful patterns of behaviour that never get confronted and changed, abilities and gifts that never get cultivated and deployed, until weeks become months and months turn into years and one day you're looking back on a life of deep, intimate, gut-wrenchingly honest conversations you never had, of great bold prayers that you never prayed, exhilarating risks you never took, sacrificial gifts that you never offered, lives you never touched. And you're sitting in a recliner with a shriveled soul and forgotten dreams and you realise that there was a world of desperate need and a great God calling you to be part of something bigger than yourself. You see the person you could have become but did not. You never followed your calling. You never got out of the boat. And what is it that will mean that you will not end up like this? It's faith. It's faith. Because faith is what enables you to conquer your fears and to take risks and to live the life that God calls you to. Well, let's conclude. The word of God to us today is to be people of substantial faith. To be people who trust in Jesus as our prophet, priest and king formed in our minds and souls and strength by him. I don't know how you feel about hearing that call. It may be that you feel somewhat exhilarated. You think, yes, I want to be that kind of person. That's how I want to live my life. Trusting Jesus to teach me the truth and to save my soul and to direct my path. Or it may be that you actually feel a little depressed and you look at yourself and you go, well, that's really not me. I want to finish by describing to you what I think uh, is a very important dynamic in faith by means of the hymn, uh, the verse which you have there before you. It's by a woman uh, whose name is Christina Rossetti, who herself was a depressive character, 
in, in, her, in her character, often deeply sad and insecure in her Christian life. And she, she wrote this hymn, it's called None Other Lamb, it's a slightly slow and depressing sort of hymn, so you might not have sung it, it sort of reflects her own, you know, stuff. It's one of the most brilliant depictions of faith, though, I think I've ever seen. Listen to how it goes, the first couple of lines. My faith burns low, I won't sing it for you, though, if there is a now a website, if you look up None Other Land, you can go to a website where it'll actually play it for you out of your computer. Uh, it's kind of cute. My faith burns low, my hope burns low, only my heart's desire cries out in me. She looks at her faith. And in that sense, actually, you see, she breaks faith she looks at faith rather than having faith and realises the poverty of her faith. It burns low, it falters, it fails. And you may know that. Perhaps after a particularly frequent sin or a common failure or just a tiredness and frustration and you say, my faith burns low. But, and, and this is the point, that is not the end. You see the dynamic of faith that is at its heart that takes even that precise moment of sadness and despair and lowness and makes that the occasion for faith. See how she puts it? By the deep thunder of its want and woe cries out to thee. The very experience of poverty, of want and woe cries out within her. Cries out to God. And so is she a person of little faith? Yes, she is. And is she a person also of deep faith? Yes, she is. For faith is endlessly shy, you see. It endlessly turns away from itself, even in its own pocket, to the great, objective, powerful, comforting object of our weak and halting faith, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Even in our weakness, even in our failure. Let us too be people of faith. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, our great prophet and priest and king, we pray that you would strengthen us to be your people of true and lasting faith. And we ask it for your glory. Amen.